Uh, I met Dave at the 1997 World Convention, and uh, we've had a chance to talk a few times, including at the last convention over in Scottsdale, and uh, got to see him speak at a midnight meeting. It's pretty powerful. Great story. Put your hands together with Dave in for from Phoenix, Arizona. Comfortable. My name is Dave, and I am an addict and an alcoholic. And uh, it is a privilege to be here tonight. Can you hear me? Does it feedback and sound like I'm in a room with a bunch of balloons? Um, I want to thank the, the speakers before me tonight. I know that, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary doing uh, public speaking, especially in our fellowship. And one of the things I need to say first off is I know a lot of you got more time than me. I know a lot of you do more service work than, than I do. I know a lot of you got better sobriety than I do. So if you're qualifying me right now, I can see. You win. <laughs> so with that out of the way, you know, uh, our president's from Arkansas, right? Right? You. Hey, Brian. Is our president from where you live? Right. Okay. No, I just, I just heard that, uh, I don't even say it. Um, I am a pants, piss, and vomit-covered, tongue-chewing, curb-crawling, hope-to-die dope fiend. And um, for me, like I said, it's a privilege to be here tonight. It's a privilege to be anywhere tonight, and I don't want to lose any sight of that. When I was four years old, my mom and dad got divorced. And... Um, my dad used to drink beer, and he would give me the beer can, and he would say, go get me another beer, boy. And uh, I would go get him another beer, and I would finish the spit back on the way to the fridge. And, and consequently, I was on a dry drunk from four years old to 13 when, uh, after my mom and dad got divorced, uh, 13 years old, my sister, I have three sisters, my youngest sister ma uh, met this guy and, and married him, and, and his uh, little brother was a pot smoker, and uh, my sister's husband played guitar. And he had this beautiful piece of crap guitar. Now that I play guitar, I know it was a piece of junk. <laughs> um, it, it, it was really nice looking. It was like flames and stuff. And, and I thought, this guy's cool. Because, you know, I mean, I thought my sister was cool and she liked him. And, and the little brother had pot. And, and uh, I wanted to be cool too. And, and uh, he played a bass player. And bass players aren't cool. Um, <laughs> So I figured, I figured that the, the pot helped him, you know, so we, we smoked a little pot and, and uh, it was winter time and, and um, we decided to climb a tree and smoke the pot. And uh, problem is we're two teenagers in a tree with no leaves, just sticks everywhere. And, and we think we're hiding. You see these two kids up there and anyways, make a long story boring. Um, when uh, I actually experienced smoking dope for the first time, I had uh, got a bag of Doritos, the big ones, and I got the munchies. And uh, I was so hungry, I don't know why I took Doritos, but I ate the whole entire bag and I didn't swallow and I didn't chew any before I swallowed them. And, and when, I, when I woke up, I was laying naked on my mother's bed under a sheet with an empty bag of Doritos and it felt like I was gargling broken glass. And I hate Doritos now. I, I, I see him and it's like, ah! Um, so, moving on, my mom was a Jehovah's Witness, and I have nothing against organized religion. It says so in our book that we should be quick to see where religious people are right. And today I have a really, very, very powerful relationship with God. But in the beginning, when people would say God to me, it made my butt grow right together. I just did not <laughs> like the thought of having to deal with God. Because I was one of those little kids you guys used to slam the door on. Sunday mornings, I would try and sell you our little literature. I'm like, hi, would you like a watchtower? Bam! And, and I started thinking, like, what is wrong with me? I'm fundamentally flawed. You know, and, and I don't know that that set me up to be a dope fiend or not, but, you know, it just uh, definitely affected my esteem. And, and uh, 
One of our speakers had said something about that black hole. Uh, it's funny she said that because I feel the same way that we have a soul sickness and that's why we drink and use is to fill that hole because we're sick. Um, when uh, my mom was pontificating about her spiritual superiority to my uh, understanding of God and, and my relationship with him, she had said that if I smoked pot, it was going to be a gateway drug, and that I would grow boobs, and <laughs> if that was a true plastic surgeon would be out of business. And uh, she also said that, you know, she, another one was that if I masturbated, I'd go blind, and I could see all of you. <laughs> um, I, uh, it, it did lead to uh, other drugs, though, and... Um, you know, I did uh, uh, psychopharmaceuticals and, and uh, all kinds of psychedelics and, and pills and powders and stuff and just everything. And uh, at about maybe 17 years old, I had discovered that I had a career to be a musician. And, and it wasn't that I was good. I was damn good. And... Um, and I'm being serious. God had given me a gift. It was not by my own doing because I still could do it when I was sober. And I'm more successful now that I'm sober than I've ever been in my entire career. And today, I'm in a recording studio in Los Angeles. The clock is ticking up there. The money's being spent. And I'm here with you. Now, what is my priority? Recovery, baby. I'm here. Not there. So, um, I had this gig I got to do, and uh, this guy, we go to his house, and I had the flu, bonafide flu, and, and uh, it was back when we used to smoke freebase, and some of you old crusty old timers know what that is. <laughs> so, uh, I'm at this house, this guy's got an incredible fish tank, and he's dumping cocaine in the water, and I'm going, are you stupid? He goes, just watch. And then all of a sudden, I scorch this liquid onto a mirror, and then lights a little fire, and then we're smoking this stuff. And I took one hit, and the flu went away. I didn't have the flu anymore, you know? But see, the great thing about that was the phenomenon of craving did not start. All I knew was that I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof, and I went to go do my concert. And then I got drunk, and that was it for smoking three days. Um, things kind of progressed with my drinking, and, and uh, at 15 years old, let me back up a little bit. Let me just tell you why I was living on my own. At 15 years old, my mom decided she didn't want to live with a guy that sold pot for a living. I wanted to pursue my musical career, and, and I figured that, you know, there wasn't really much that a 15-year-old could do. And so I figured I would sell joints of commercial pot at the high school I went to for 50 cents a joint. Now, I know that that's like really dating myself, and now I'm old. Um, but uh, at 15 years old, my mom moved out, and I'm paying rent. I got a car. don't have a license. But I had MTV. You know, when it first came out, when they played Pat Benatar 10 times an hour. <laughs> And, uh, so people were coming to my house and they were hanging out and um, I, I'm watching my drug use get stronger and stronger and more and more and more and more and more and um, I get a uh, a novel idea that I would let people sell my drugs for me while I go and do my concert now this guy evidently knew that I was going to do a concert, jumps through the window, steals all my dope. And I had had a quarter pound of red Lebanese hash, and I had cut it into little grams. That's a lot of cutting and a lot of tinfoil folding. <laughs> yeah, someone knows. <laughs> so I thought, I've got it. I'm going to get me a couple of dogs. So I, I got these little alligators with fur. They were these... Uh, the Staffordshire Bull Terriers crossbred with Rhodesian Ridgebacks. And basically, they were, they were like robotic dogs that like to eat people. <laughs> and I was in another band, and uh, 
gone to rehearsal, took one of the dogs, the dog jumped up on a guy's car, scratched the car, the singer in this band that I played guitar kicked the dog, I kicked his ass. And I got fired. And um, that was probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done, was uh, doing that because it cost me literally millions and millions of dollars. They've gone on to superstar status, and, and you know I've gone my own way. I'm glad that this is the way that it is right now because I wouldn't be here with you tonight. In my life right now, I would I would rather have my success at the level that I have right now than superstardom and not have uh, the relationship with the Fellowship of Cocaine Anonymous and and with the people that I know and I love and I sponsor with my sponsor and with my family and my God. Um, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit because there's a few different ways that I tell my story and I just want to get to the meat and the potatoes about the recovery part but when I got into the band following the one that I got kicked out of um, this was in uh, this was in uh, 19 uh, probably 1982 83 or something and we were looking for a record deal and this is a very androgynous time in in the music industry and and, uh, we had an opportunity to go with a major label or an independent label. And the guy at the major label had designs on me. I didn't want to have anything to do with him, so I kind of pawned him off on our bass player. And um, <laughs> it, nothing happened, don't worry. But uh, I kept thinking, you know, independent rap, major label. Well, this means a man's hairy ass. Independent, man's hairy ass, independent. <laughs> You know, I had nothing against gay guys, um, especially at a distance, but, you know, it's like, I mean, for me, I went the independent route. It was really difficult, and it took a long time. And we got this drummer, and he was uh, a jazz guy, and he shows up, and he's got these Capizio shoes on, which are like shoes for ballerinas or fruits. And um, he fell asleep with a cigarette in his hand. It burnt right through his fingers, right through his fingers. And, you know... I'm looking at him, and all I could smell is that smell you like when you eat pork rinds. And I thought, man, we're going to have fun on the road. This guy's into S, and man, we're going to have girls hanging upside down, cattle prods, and all this kind of stuff, you know? And um, turns out, this guy was a junkie. And uh, we go to his house one day, and he puts out a little bit of heroin. And I said, you know, what is all this? He goes, man, it's like, you know, doing a lot of pot. You know? and, and the weird thing about this guy, you never see that. I don't know if any of you can relate with this, but there's a Christian cartoon called Davy and Goliath. It was out back when I was a kid, a hundred years ago. And, and uh, the dog used to talk to Davy. Now, my dog never really talked to me, but uh, the dog used to go, Davy, God doesn't want you to do that. Now, this is ironic because the drummer's got the same exact voice as Goliath. He's going, well, baby, no heroin makes you feel like you're back in the womb. And I thought, you know, guys, we, we start our lives leaving and spend the rest of it trying to get back into the womb. So it's like, the idea of doing something like heroin that would make me feel like that, hey, you know, he tried to sum it up by saying it's like you're in a bowl of warm liver. So I figured, you know, well, what have I got to lose? So I did a tiny little bit of it, and I fell asleep. <clears throat> Sleep. Out cold. And I'm watching these guys every day sticking their face over a stove with them. Little glass pipe. We call it all kinds of things. The devil's dick, a stem, crack pipe. All I know is these guys were sticking their face over the stove. It didn't matter what was in their mouth. You know, and they had hair. <laughs> now, some of you guys don't have to worry about that, but, you know. So I fall asleep, and they said, you've got to try this, Dave. And I, and I finally just said, you know what, I'll try it. So I go over there, and, and, and b- before I tell you this, i gotta, I, I got to say something. I hate cats. I think cats are satanic. There's no other animal that your pet will claw your eyes out. Right? I had gotten a cat for somebody in my family and I'm down on the side of my bed doing my prayers at night and I hear this cat pissed on my bed and was spreading it on my head. I hate cats. 
So I go over to the stove and, and I say, you know, what have I got to lose? They're back into the warm bowl of warm liver, like you're smoking a lot of pot syndrome. It's accurate. Felt really good. Felt really sleepy, but it felt really good. So I go over and I lean over the fire. And it felt like God had stuck his hand right at my butt and was pushing all my guts out. And I ran to the bathroom as fast as I could to throw up. And I almost made it there. Grabbed onto the toilet, got done throwing up, and looked over, and there was a litter box. And it wasn't a cat. It was a goddamn mountain lion. Because you know how your, your senses are turned to ten when you're tweaking on crack and... I was bummed. <laughs> that smell. And then looking at it, I couldn't get back to the stove fast enough. And I went back there and I understood why they were sticking their face over the stove. Because at that point, the phenomenon of craving had started, hair doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll grow more! <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> thus started an eight-year relationship with uh, heroin and a 13-year relationship with a crack pipe. And I was doing between three to $500 worth of drugs a day. Um, sadly for me, I had the money to back up a serious habit. And I figured it out, and, and uh, I got a couple of houses up my face. And, and you know, I, one of the things that really bugs me when I come into meetings, old-timers will come up and they'll say, Man, I spilt more than you ever use, and all I can think is, sure, I'm one clumsy asshole then. <laughs> and uh, I think that's another thing that kind of saddens me about some of our, our, our old-timers and the fellowship, because there's two types of old-timers. There's elder statesmen and there's bleeding deacons, and the alcoholic still suffers a lot of times it's the old-timer who has gotten far away from the pain of being drunk or high. And for those of you that are new, welcome to our fellowship. I hope and I pray that you will stay around long enough for the spiritual awakening to take place in your life. You may not want what I got, but ask yourself if you want what you got. Now... I tried doing methadone. Do my dose, I was great. Stay up all night, smoke crack. Go to the methadone clinic. One time I fell asleep, had a cigarette on my chest, burnt a hole in my skin, got out of smoke crack, went to the methadone clinic. And methadone didn't work for me because I was mixing it with heroin. <laughs> and then I had a private doctor. Private doctor was... Uh, shooting in the stomach with uh, syringes full of bupernex, which is uh, English detox medicine. I uh, had this uh, terrible problem of not being satisfied when I'm high or I'm drunk. You know, it's, it's not that enough isn't enough. It's just I don't know what enough is. Um, see, I've been to treatment 15 times. I developed a $30,000 a month treatment center habit. <laughs> And I have got some very stylish pajamas from the hospitals. I don't like the ones where the butt hangs out, but some of those drawstring pants, they're really cool. Um, yeah, I'm driving here today and I see Scripps Ahoy and I went, I went to that place. It sucked. That was number two. It took 13 more. <laughs> Actually, you know what happened when I was there? I left, I went to the fish market in Villa de Laval, and I bought heroin, and I went back and stuck it in my ear like James Bond, like, no one's going to check my ears. <laughs> and I did it in the hospital, and I called my mom, and I said, Mom, come and get me. And then uh, the manager who was managing my career at the time said that if you leave, I'm going to blackball you in the industry. I left and I got home. There was an answer. On, uh, there was a message on my answering machine. He says, "You're done. You're blackballed, and it's that drunken cunt of a mother's of yours fault." I wanted to kill this guy, but you want to know the miracle of this program? I found my pardons and I made amends to him. 
And I prayed that he would go to heaven. That night, but I prayed that he would go to heaven. You know, um, so anyways, I'm jumping around a little bit. I uh, have all this Buprenex and syringes. I bought a $400 bag of pot, and I had chlorhydrates and all this other stuff, and heroin and spoons and crack pipes. I'm driving home because I just had a guy show me how to shoot up. And this guy's hanging out the window, and I'm driving, I'm looking at him, he's flashing the shiny thing out the window, and I'm thinking, nice trick. And I'm looking, it's a badge. So I pull over, and he goes, man, you know what? Let me get you a tux, and he went, all right, a cool pig. And uh, I have two brothers that are cops, so I feel qualified to call him a pig. I'm sure some of you do, too. And I'm sitting on the curb in a trench coat full of everything. And I see these two cruisers come up and I went, man, the taxis here look like cop cars. <laughs> and I went to jail. Now, the cop to check me in was nice enough to say, you know what, wrap yourself in your trench coat, get on the top bunk, because they're going to get your butt. And, and I went, okay, and I jumped up there. So... Um, treatment center 15 times the 12th time I went to a place called Wickenburg in Phoenix and um, see by then I had learned how to detox myself I have a PhD in detoxing people and I went to the doctor and I said listen I want Versed I want Fistral I want Chlorhydrates I need some Clonopan because I have a little bit of problem right now with my blood pressure you're going to need to give me some iron tablets because of my anemia because I haven't been eating And he said, sure. And then he gave me a piece of paper and he says, sign here. Now, little did I know what I just signed was I bought his house. That was funny to me. <laughs> my, my wife comes to get me. And I had fallen between the toilet and the tub, split my face open, blood everywhere. So I still have a scar. And I crawled to the paper and I said, honey, they're over-medicating me. She came and got me. Now, this is a first. Me to see I'm getting too high. And they took me to Wickenburg, and I died up there. And I was dead long enough for them to call my wife and say, Dave's dead. And you know what's really lacked? <laughs> I had to keep getting high. Came out of it, got sober for a little while was not ready to do everything that the program suggested we do. Went to three more treatment centers. Now, this last time that I went to treatment, I think you know I qualify now with all this other horses I'm telling you about. Um, the last time I went, my heart and lungs had arrhythmia. My liver and kidneys were malfunctioning. I had cotton flu. My pulse was 30. And I'd already died once. And I got into the treatment center, and I thought I was Tarzan, because I get out of the car. My wife had found me in Hollywood. I was slamming heroin and cocaine as quickly as I could. Didn't even know how to shoot up. I just know that you put it in here, this way, that way. You don't know anything about the belt or anything like that. And I'm smoking it this way, and I'm shooting it that way, and I'm drinking beer because my throat's scalded, and I'm vomiting. And my wife comes with this Israeli bodyguard for Bruce Willis and a bunch of other Israeli bodyguards in the business, and they were packing weapons for days. They just came to save me because this one Israeli is one of my best friends in the world. They planned on going in this huge crack house, right? It's just me and some other guy whose legs are about as big as my arms by ourselves. And, and I'm making a record at the time, and I hear this... Hello? It's for Dave. Uh, yes? We got some tapes for you to listen to. Okay, so I get the phone. Hi, it's Dave. You fucking asshole! It's my wife. <laughs> now, I had disappeared for four days and my Versatile card and completely drained my entire bank account. There was a for sale sign up in front of my house. I had $2,000 left to my name. We were heading for divorce. I'd given my three-year-old son Valium at the time so that I could smoke heroin. And uh, I was done. I was done. So I laid down in the hospital and I said, you know, God, I know that I am perilous over drugs and alcohol and the clock is ticking and I'm going to get high again and I'm just going to die and this time I'm going to stay dead. 
because I ain't going to pull no rabbit out of no hat and save my life. And I lay down and I said, God, please let me die. And eight days later, I woke up and this Mexican girl with long fingernails is feeding the chicken. She goes, damn, Holmes, I never seen nobody until this chicken. <laughs> and I went, I went, well, it's not because I haven't eaten for eight days, you know. So, um, I started on my course getting sober. And this time it's stuck and God willing in... 51 hours, I will turn five, and um, I'm not going to project anything. A couple of my babies I sponsored back home have tried to give me five-year coins, and I said, you know what, I don't front in sobriety, you know, that's just not, you know, I'm, I mean, if I make it to five, cool, you can put some diamonds on it or something, but, you know, I'm not going to take it ahead of time because I'm for real today. My sobriety is the most important thing in my life. Anything I put between my sobriety and me, I'm going to lose. More important than my wife and my kids, my sobriety comes first. Because if I'm fucked up, I'm not a good dad or husband. Now, if you're in a relationship, the steps will work on you and the traditions will work on your relationship. So, without any more nonsense, I'm just going to talk to you about my understanding of the 12 steps. Because the way that I've learned them is the way that Bill and Bob did it. It's not some other, you know, nouveau... 12-stepper who was doing secondary recovery, which Dr. Bob warned us about before he died. You know, I'm not into like this, well, I'm doing it for me this time, and I have these shame core spirals, and I'm codependent, and my inner child says, oh, God, a fucking inner child. I got an inner weasel. You know, and, and this stuff about, this, <laughs> this stuff about, you know, all these other issues, I'm powerless. Now, what does that mean to me? Being an alcoholic and a drug addict, okay, the physical allergy means that once I start, I can't stop no matter what. The mental obsession means that once I stop, I can't stay stopped. And the spiritual malady means I'm hopeless without a power greater than myself. Period. It's that simple. And I've been to Dr. Bob's house. I cried while I did the third step prayer up in his daughter's room where we, where we uh, detoxed these new green recruits and stuff. And, and it was really a moving uh, experience for me to be there and to think about how many people have been sobered up in that house. To think that if it wasn't for Dr. Bob and Bill W. that I would be dead. None of you would be here. So, the only thing that I can do to ever pay these two men back is to do the deal the way it's outlined in the big book about Cox's Anonymous. So the second part of step two, and by the way, thank you for whoever organized this meeting for having the steps and the traditions up there. Because I've spoken at meetings before and they weren't there, and when I looked behind me, it was kind of like when I was driving when I was high. You know, you just can't <laughs> so, the second part of step one, you know, you notice there's a hyphen there. And that means that that's an afterthought where it says that our life had become unmanageable. And my life had become unmanageable, given my three-year-old volume so that I could smoke heroin? Come on. I live out in the desert. We have mountain lions out there. I didn't want him walking outside when I was nodding and being eaten and his, his mom coming home and, and, and seeing him mauled in the backyard. Now imagine the amends. <laughs> to a little three-year-old boy. I had to do it with his mother there, and it was like doing it in front of a polar bear. Because I, I said, Justice, Daddy's got to make an empty for giving him some of these rude messages. Blah, blah, blah. And right and his mom, I just hear her start going. And the iron doors of her mind slammed shut. The immense process didn't matter at that time. All that mattered was that I had crossed the line as a human being. My life was totally unmanageable. I had a bottle of Valiums because my wife said that she didn't like the way booze smelt on my breath. I figured those two things. Either I never opened my mouth or my keen alcoholic mind says, get Valiums, it's concentrated alcohol. So, being a spoiled rock star, I bought 500 Valiums. And, and this is me. I'm in a bus by myself. The back of the bus is mirrored. I can't stand my band anymore. They can't stand me. And I got this 
in a bottle of vitamin C. Keen alcoholic mind, right? And so, and this is exactly how it happened, too. Watch, slow motion. For you that are listening to the tape right now, I'm walking very slowly. I'm doing something really stupid. So here's me. I dropped the values behind the VCR. And I turn back, and here's the mirror, and I see my wife standing back there. And I'm like, oh, shit. I was busted. And, and my life was so unmanageable at the time that I, I took the bottle and I went. I wrote on my arms because I knew I would lie in the morning and say, oh, I didn't say I'm going to treatment. So I wrote, I'm going to, because I'm not left-handed. You know, <laughs> this guy couldn't mean. <laughs> so... I go, uh, I go into the bog in the, in the bus and I dump all these Valium down the toilet except for 36 and I put them in a wastebasket and I thought, what did I do? I was so unmanageable at the time I wanted the bus driver to stop so I could pull the handle on the toilet and get the Valiums before they dissolved in the toilet. This is how wacko I was. So, anyways, I had no problem with doing step one. Can't, once I start, I can't stop no matter what. Once I do stop, I can't stay stopped no matter what. And the only way I have any hope is finding a power greater than myself. And my life shows me that I am completely unmanageable. So two, came to believe in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. Now that was a novel thought, being sane, since everything I did was insane. And you know, with my job, I look out and I see people that have spray-painted sheets saying, Dave for President, Dave is God, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, it's, it's a distorted sense of reality, you know. Once I got sober, it's when people started throwing drugs up on stage. I'm thinking, you're a little late, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyways, it, it, it was really easy for me having died to, to try this and say, you know what? It comes down to this for step two. Either God's everything or is nothing. He either is or he is. And what's my choice? Well, you know, it's like you're shooting one hand, wishing the other, you know? So, I said he's everything. Either he is or he isn't. And that's one of the things that I fall back on whenever anything's going wrong in my life today that I find unacceptable to me. Either God's everything, and this is exactly how it's supposed to be, or he's nothing, and maybe I can fix it. Ah, someone's a fixer over there. So I got through two really easy, and then I did step three, and in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the basic text that we use in Cocaine Anonymous because it works, the part in the book where it talks about the actor running the whole play, I read that in the first person, which is a very novel idea for you if you've never done it, and even more so is if you change it to your name. Has anybody got a big book here? Ooh. Anybody got any cocaine? I'm like an actor who runs a whole play. I'm forever trying to arrange the lights, the scenery, the ballet, blah, blah, blah. And the part where it says, I can be gracious, as the case may be, or more demanding. Now, I'm not good at gracious. I'm good at demanding, you know. But when I read it like that, all of a sudden it, it, it sunk in my head. Now, I had gotten a sponsor when I went to treatment the 15th time and when Dave went up to the payphone, you knew it because I would get to the phone and I'd go <laughs> that's me trying to talk right I'm sobbing and I don't want anybody to hear me go <laughs> so I would not speak I'd whisper <laughs> she likes that so and then you would be able to tell because there were little saline pools by the phone, my tears. You know, when they would dry, there's little salt rings going <laughs> next to the phone. So I called this guy, and I said, you know what, I need to find a sponsor. And, and, and where I live in Arizona, it's hot. They call it the, the, the valley of the sun. It ain't. It's the surface of the sun. <laughs> and um, it's during the summer, this dude's walking around with a leather jacket on, and he's got a long ponytail, but no hair on the top. And I think he can't even make up his mind if he has hair or not. <laughs> you know? He's a spiritual prick know-it-all, and, and he's wearing a leather jacket during the summer. And I call this number, and it's him. And I thought, someone was playing a very terrible joke on me. 
And I said, you know what, I, I gotta find a sponsor. He goes, you asking me to be a sponsor? And I went, no. Um, no, I need to find a sponsor kind of temporarily. He's been my temporary sponsor for almost five years now. Now, I'm going to get around to ask him to sponsor me one day, but it's working right now, so I'm not going to screw it up. And the thing that really connected me to this man was that he had been through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in the book, was very involved in Cocaine Anonymous, and he got to me because he doesn't care that I'm a rock star. I'm another addict, alcoholic, that was suffering. And that's all that mattered. And I said, you know, I hate my band and I want to get out of the music business and I think everybody sucks. And he goes, Dave. He's got this terrible habit of sucking his teeth when he talks to me. You have a hair to the runny nose and the dynamite stick theory? And I said, well, no, I haven't. Now, I've got a lot of fortune cookies, but that one slipped past me. <laughs> and he goes, your band is like a runny nose, and your disease is like a lit stick of dynamite up your ass. What are you going to worry about? And I went, now, there's a visual. <laughs> and we had a connection. From that point forward, I knew that this guy could not be dazzled with my bullshit, and that we had a relationship. And he told me to write down the ten most insane things I've ever done when I was high. And I didn't hear him say hi. He said, just write down the ten most insane things you've ever done. He swears, he said, while I was high. Selective amnesia for me, I guess. Um, so I wrote down, jumping out of airplanes, unsafe sex, sharing needles, driving my family around high on drugs, um, driving around on a motorcycle with no registration, in the rain, no helmet, high on dimes with no brake light, um, scoring dope in Harlem and I'm white scoring dope in South Central I'm still white and um, a couple other crazy things and I read this list of the ten most insane things to this guy and, and um, he said the most insane thing you ever did Dave you did sober and I looked at my list and I'm like skydiving? I had a parachute you know it was like I just jumped out of a plane you know and he goes no the most insane thing you've ever done knowing the serious nature of your disease and that you've already died once, you picked up and used when you're as sober as you are right now. And again, there was a connection. Now, if there's anything that I can suggest to the new people in here or the people that have relationships with the sponsor that isn't going straight from the big book, only the black part, not the white, get a sponsor who's been through the steps that knows the steps, that knows the traditions, and that knows the 12 concepts, too. Now, that's not Chinese. There's 36 principles in this program. The 12 steps are for the individual. The traditions are for the group, and the 12 concepts are for service work. Okay? Now, with me going through step three and realizing that I was a producer of confusion and not of harmony, I thought, you know what, I, I, I want to do whatever I need to do to do this. And I wanted to take my inventory and, and you know, everyone else had. And um, so I started writing down all this terrible stuff. And I'd done it once before with a little pretty little book of yellow paper from Minnesota, and, which uh, asked me like a hundred questions about flowers and dogs and crap like that. And then I did another one where... You know, I uh, didn't write everything down because I was afraid to tell my sponsor about all the perverted things that rock stars do sexually. And then I realized I got to do this. I've got to give this a chance. You know, it works if you work it. You know, and I've seen enough people that the steps haven't laid a glove on. So I wrote down the first column, what my part is, who it was that bothered me, whether I was angry, bugged, mildly annoyed, whether I'd forgiven him or not. Second column was what it was that bugged me. Now, I even wrote down that I get pissed off at room service when the bottom bun and my hamburger's wet. You know? Anybody else out there? Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm not a Martian. 
And the third column, and that was about as far as I ever got, you know, writing down what it affected with me. I never looked at my part. My part was that, you know, you got in the way and you deserved it. So I'm doing my fourth step with uh, all the earnestness that I could possibly dig up. I did the resentment list. There was 44 pages with 11 resentments on each page. Now, that's a lot. Okay? Then I did the fear list, the sexual inventory, the harms list, because it says when you do the eighth step, it said you were supposed to do this when you did your fourth step, so that's why it's good to have a sponsor that's been through the steps. And then I did the take to the grave list. I'm with my sponsor in the park. Now, now by, by now, he's wised up and shaved his entire head. Still got a leather jacket on. We go to this little kiddie park with a merry-go-round and a train. New summertime. The two of us are at a picnic bench holding hands, praying. And the moms are looking at us like, they're here to eat our children. <laughs> So I started doing my fifth step with him, and I'm reading everything, and, and I noticed that he's going through a, a considerable amount of cigarettes, and, and I was using up just about the last uh, little area of my bladder, and it was time for me to go to the bathroom, and I went in there, and I see this burped up chili dog on the floor, and I thought, this is so symbolic. Some kids barfed in here, and I'm spiritually barfing out there. I go back, and, and we keep going on, and we keep going on, and I get to the sexual inventory, and, and I... Um, Start talking about some of the weird things I did sexually, and he goes, Now you're getting honest. And I'm like, Were you sleeping? And he was. And I'm thinking, You know, I've done so many fist steps now, I don't blame him because there's only so much you can do with your mind and your body, and it gets a little boring after a while, waiting until you get to the juicy parts. And if you don't get the juicy parts, then you know, you might as well do your four step again. So the juice came out. We went to his house after uh, we finished the fifth step, and it was time for me to burn my inventory. I took the eighth step out so that I didn't uh, burn my harms list. And I'm tossing it in the fire, and this is so symbolic because my mom was a religio, and, and I know fire's cleansing, and it's so hot, it dawned on me I was too close to the fire. And I'm getting ready to put the last couple of pages in, and I, I'm thinking, what is it that I'm doing right now? I'm setting myself free. And I went home, and I looked at the first five proposals. Now, Bill W. is kind of like a frustrated construction guy, right? He says step one is the foundation, step two is the cornerstone. You guys that don't lay brick for a living, that is the brick that says the date, the construction company, the name of the building. So we've got the foundation, the cornerstone, and then the keystone is that really weird brick that's at the top that holds everything in place. Because the arch comes in like this. The keystone goes on top and keeps everything from falling down on top of us so we can walk through it. So, my foundation's in place, my cornerstone's in place, my keystone's in place, I walk through the arch, down my fifth step, is there anything I've left out? And I could honestly say no. I said, okay, you're on step seven. I said, okay, read the parent. Okay, you're on step eight. And I went, this is cool, it's going really fast now, you know? And what was great about this program, if you do it the way that it's laid out in the book, it's not supposed to take a year to get through the steps. I mean, they used to do all 12 steps back in Akron in a day. Okay? So, uh, for, for certain people that are of the understanding that you're supposed to be a year before you can go through the steps, or a year to sponsor, first off, being a year to sponsor somebody is bullshit, because if that was the case, there'd be no fellowship, because Bill was only a couple months sober, and Bob was only a couple weeks sober when they went to AA number three, another dude named Bill. Okay? So, if you're afraid to sponsor somebody because you don't have a year, my personal opinion, don't believe it. You have living proof in this fellowship that that is a bunch of shit. Now, sponsorship is one of the most beautiful things that you can do in this fellowship because you're involved in the active recovery of someone else. And even says in the book, when your life, it's on page 70, it says, if you're finding some area of your life troublesome, talking about sex, but I'm generalizing this, throw yourself that much harder into working with other people. You know what, when, when I think my life is bad because my million dollar home has an outlet that's not working with a switch, and one of my sponsees calls up and says, you know what, protective children's services is going to take my kids away, I don't think about that socket anymore. And that's the gift of sponsorship. So, 
I've done step seven, and, and the funny thing about how I got to my, my, my seventh step was that I have this piece of paper, and my sponsor tells me to write on the top what it is slash was about them that pisses me off. And think, this is great. So we're going through the fifth step, and, and, and I do something, and I say, ah, she was a thief. Well, write that down. Okay, I will. Thief. And this one was sexually loose. Well, write that down. Okay. Slut. And this guy was alive. Liar! And cheat uh, and greedy and all these things. And I'm writing all this stuff down. And he says, write down chicken shit. And I wrote down chicken shit. And I thought, well, why would I put chicken shit there? So all of a sudden, about ten minutes before the fifth step's over, it dawned on me what he was doing. That was my character defect list. And it was the flip side of pride is humility. I'm writing all these things down. He says, scratch out them and put me there. So I was wishing I wouldn't have written down so many things when I found out what the list was for. And uh, step seven, it says that, that we, we pray for God to remove these defects of character and not Dave. So um, I get to my A-step list. There was a lot of people there, and, and uh, a lot of these people I thought I harmed. I didn't really harm them. A couple people I thought I harmed because I didn't let them in my circle of friends. You know, I didn't want to associate with them. I probably saved them harm by not being their friends. Um, I had to make amends to a girl I thought the first time I went through the steps because I had sex with her. Wasn't somebody that I was particularly attracted to without um, 80 proof blood. And uh, I called her up and I said, you know, I need to make amends to you because I slept with you when I was drunk. And my sponsor made me make amends to her for making amends to her because that probably was the only thing she was hanging on to. And I thought, look, I wasn't that good. And... Uh, the part was that, you know, I had harmed her by, by making her think that she wasn't that good. And the most important part of step eight for me is the last word where it says all. Make amends to them all. Got to be willing to make amends to them all. And I was willing to make amends to them all. I, used to, I was born down here in La Mesa. I grew up in Huntington Beach. I was one of those little surf pukes that used to steal surf racks and stuff like that. And... And people in my neighborhood wised up and started stripping the nuts on them. But I figured, you know what? Take the rain gutter off the car. You know? And, and uh, how would I ever make amends to all these people that I stole their surf racks? And if I, if I stole your surf racks, I've made amends. So <laughs> I put extra money in the can at h and I. I went down to St. Vincent de Paul downtown where I lived in, in Phoenix. And, and I went up to some of the winos. And I said, uh, listen, I need to talk to you. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I need to do a ninth step. Oh, I don't want to do Wait, I need to give you some money for something. Please. Ah. <laughs> it's like Dumbo's ears all of a sudden. And they said, uh, okay. And I said, listen, i got to do a ninth step. I owe somebody some money. I can't find them. Will you accept this money on their behalf? They said, sure. I used to be in that... A&A stuff, and I... Well... And the reason that I did that is because we don't do 12-step calls anymore. We really don't. The treatment centers do that. I mean, how many of you have had the opportunity to do a down-and-dirty 12-step call? Few. Few of you. I have. I've had to hold people while they vomit on me. Now, the way that I did the ninth step was that um, I had to make amends. I tell them that I'm trying to recover on a spiritual basis. Sometimes I didn't say that because it's like leading with the chin. Says so in the book. I said, I still never get over the wrongs I've done. I'll, I'll never be able to stay sober unless I've righted the wrongs I've done. And I've seen I've done the following harms to you. And I tell them what I've done and I shut up. And I wait for their reaction. I ask them if there's anything I haven't seen. I shut up. They tell me. Either they say, oh, honey, just stay sober. Or they say, well, man, now that you mention it, you cock. And they let me have it. And then I say, what would you have me do to make amends to you? And I shut up again. And I'm quiet. And I listen to what they say and I write it all down. The reason I write it down because it says in the big book that we're not servile or scraping. That as God's people, we don't crawl before anybody. And if someone expects me to make an amends by doing something that's going to compromise my relationship with God or my sobriety, I ain't going to do it. 
That's just all there's to it. Like if someone says, Well, that dope you burned me for? Go get me some more. Sorry. <laughs> and I've had to make amends to dead people, to one night stands. I've had to make amends to people that I hate. And thank God Bill said in the book that we're going to have to make amends with the people we hate. One of the guys who used to manage my career, I had to tell him that I was wrong. And the funny thing was, I went to New York one day and I went to a hotel and I had this weird feeling, the more sober you get, the more in touch you get with God and your intuition turns on. And I had this feeling that this guy was there. And I'd written a letter to him and I said that if I see him in person, I'm willing to make the amends in person. Same thing I did with the dead people. If I don't know where they lived, if they died, I, I mailed it either to Terry General, delivery to the last city they lived in, or I mailed it to the cemetery, or I just burned it after I'd read it to my sponsor. Especially like with the one night stands and stuff like that. Um, so I write this letter to this guy where I knew who he was and the only reason I wrote it to him was because he wasn't accepting my phone calls and the only reason I would do a phone call is if I couldn't do it face to face so I called the hotel operator and I said have you got a Mr. So-and-so here and they said what's the first name sir and I said Ron he says checks in tomorrow morning I went Ugh. it's like someone just clogged my toilet I was so bummed of all the cities, of all the days, all the hotels, he's there. I figure, you know what, I'll just get a person in the morning, I'll go to the elevator, I'll get my car, I'll go right to the record company, it'll be over. Seems pretty reasonable, huh? I get up, go to the elevator, door opens up. There he is. I swear to you, right there. And I walked in and I went, oh, God. I said, did you get my letter? And he says, yeah. I said, we cool? And he said, yeah. And I hugged him and it was over. It was so amazing. It says in the big book that years of feuding and ice will melt away, and it did. Now, the sad thing about it is my stupid record company hired this guy without talking to me, so after all the wrongs that had happened, he's still in my life. So I get through the ninth step. I put all the extra dollars into the can. You know, I'd gone down to the winos and given them the money, and whenever they would say... You know, oh, thank you. I say, don't thank me. Thank Cocaine Anonymous because if it wasn't for them, I'd probably be borrowing money off of you. Which is a frightening thought. Um, my tenth step, now, uh, I have a basic checklist that I use from the big book. Was I selfish, dishonest, resentful, or afraid? Did I go to a meeting today? Did I say hello to a newcomer? Did I make them feel welcome when saying hello just ain't good enough? Remember how we were when we first came in here? We were scared. Everyone's happy. They're having fun. They're joking. And I'm thinking, what's the goddamn funny? I'm dying inside. You know, and all it takes is a hug, a hello, a cup of coffee, and swapping a phone number, and, and you're one of us. And yeah, maybe, maybe it is a cult. I'm proud to be here. <laughs> Um, I asked myself if I'd done any service work today. Did I do any service work outside of the fellowship? Because see, that's where sobriety really has its way of showing if it's working or not. Because we can tiptoe in here and act really cool, but it's not on the street where we show what we're made of. If this program's really working, did I let anybody into traffic? Now, I used to drive like this. Save myself the trouble of going like this. You know? And uh, I found that when I let people in the traffic, go to a meeting, say hello to a newcomer, make them feel welcome, call my sponsor, work with my sponsees, and pray. Traffic is really okay. So is my wife. In the very beginning when I first got sober, step one was admitted I was powerless over cocaine and all other mind-altering substances and that my wife had become unmanageable. And uh, she's cool with that now because we're really, really close. She, in fact, even said, God, you know, I wish I was a dope fiend so I could have what you got. And I said, we'll go to 15 treatment centers. Um, she didn't think that was funny. And the last part of my 10th step is, did I give a bum a dollar today at the Circle K? Now, and when we live in Arizona at night and midnight, the, the Circle K becomes a bullseye. And the funny thing about that is that you go down there and you see these people that are down on their luck and you give them a dollar and they say thank you and you say, I do. I say, don't thank me, thank CA. 
blah, 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 because if it wasn't for them, I'd be blowing money off of you. What we're doing is we're planting the seed. And these people, when it's time for them to get sober, they're going to say, these 12-step guys were all right. They were there when I needed them. You know? And, and if you have an opportunity to do a 12-step call with somebody, and yeah, wear something that's, you know, you don't particularly care if it gets burped on or not, but um, I would do it. I would do it. It's definitely a rush. Um, for my 11th step, I have an 11th step prayer that my sponsor gave me. I pray for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. Ask him to direct my thinking throughout the day from self-seeking, self-pity, dishonest, and self-will. And then I ask him for the freedom from myself. Ask him for intuition, enthusiasm, and inspiration. And then I, I have to ask him for the willingness not to believe my own bullshit. And I told my sponsor, I'm not going to say I need to... Uh, pray to God for the willingness not to believe my own bullshit. I said, I'm not going to cuss to God. He said, look, he's seen what you've done sexually. You can say bullshit. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, bullshit it is. And, and um, at the very end, I said, you know, I will not mind be done. And, and the amazing thing is, is that my life has gotten so much better today when, when I really try and go throughout the day improving my conscious contact with God. Now, the weird thing is that in this world, with this fellowship that I'm proud to belong to, God brought me here, and the fellowship brought me back to God. And if you have a problem with God, I feel sorry for you. I really do. That's my personal opinion. It's not CA's. The 12th step is in three parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result. It doesn't say having had a spiritual awakening as, you know, uh, the result plus, you know, some egg roll. It's the result. Spiritually awake, your consciousness turned back on. You know the difference between right and wrong. We have that inborn ability to know what's right and what's wrong. We know that. And it made me feel really good to do bad things when I was high. And when I was sober, it made me feel very, very slimy to do the wrong thing. That's why it says promptly make amends, because we'll eat our own lunch. I've had that spiritual awakening. I'm alive right now inside. My band is paying right now, and I'm down here with you. Because I wouldn't have a band if it wasn't for you. And that's all that matters. And I think that they would pay even more for me to be here with you. And there's no way that they can pay you enough for letting me be part of this cult. <laughs> the second part, we tried to carry this message to addicts. Now, a lot of people, when they come into meetings, they carry the mess. They just come in here and bitch and bellyache and whine, and they don't talk about recovery. The first sentence in the big book, it says, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered. Nothing makes me feel more nauseous than when I listen to somebody in a meeting say, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic, and by the grace of God, in these 12 steps in this meeting, in my dark spot, I'm here today. And it's like... Get on with it. Are you sober or not? You know? If you do the steps, you'll recover. If you don't do the steps, you won't. If you've done them, good. I personally, when I get to meetings, I really, really, really try and look at what my behavior is, what my part in it is, and what I need to do to get back into feeling right with God and with my fellows. This program has fit me to be of maximum service to God and his fellows. And carrying the message to other addicts and alcoholics that still suffer, I have an H&I commitment I've had for the last five years in Arizona. The first month that I went there, I went to an insane asylum with my sponsor. I went in there and this old woman's got her bed dress open, blows all of her butt, pissed down the hallway, snot everywhere, cramp everywhere. So there's all these people covered in sheets and dung and everything. And, and I thought, nice place. And I go to this little bank robber we were doing hospice work with that likes strawberry milkshakes from Burger King. His name was Bill Burroughs. And I thought, Bill Burroughs, he's that famous junkie writer. Turns out he was some guy with lung cancer, and I walked into his room. 
and I'm looking at the wallpaper, and there's this really weird black pattern all over it. He'd been coughing up pieces of his lung. And um, we uh, left there after I was absolutely mortified, went to Lark, which is where I go every Friday night. Guy has a grand mal seizure in front of me, and a Native American stands up, craps himself. The whole room smells like sulfur, and he walks out, and I'm thinking... My sponsor went to a lot of trouble to make a good first impression on me. I went home that night and he said, Dave, is there anything that you're not willing to stay sober? And I said, yeah, suck a dick. I'm glad you're still awake. And then when I got my first year sober, he said, is there anything that you're not willing to do anymore? I said, no, just make it a little one. And thank God I haven't had to do that yet. <laughs> At least, uh, not that I remember. <laughs> the third part of step 12, this is the most important part of the 12 steps for me, is, to, is practicing these principles in all our affairs. And like I said earlier, 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 concepts. If you don't know what the 12 concepts are, ask your sponsor. If your sponsor doesn't know, call the World Service Office and maybe consider getting a new sponsor. Because if he hasn't suggested to you to get into service work, you're missing the spiritual awakening. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to bag on any of you guys that are doing sponsorship here. If it wasn't for you coming before me, I probably wouldn't have got my sobriety fucked up so many times. And a lot of people are dying because they're not knowing what you're talking about. So, 36 principles. Remember, for me, I may be the only... Big book anybody ever sees out on the street, and I may be the only sobriety that they ever get to experience. Now, if they're going to read the big book off of what I do with my behavior, I want to do it right. Because somebody somewhere is living with an addict or an alcoholic, and they want help, but they see me going through life, poking society in the eye, they're going to say, you know what? He may be a drunken asshole, but he's better than Dave is. I don't want that to ever happen. I want the hand of CA to always be there. Always. Now, I'm sorry if I've lectured to you. I believe in this program very, very much. I've been taught by a hardcore big book thumper. There's only seven people between me and Bill W. It hasn't had a lot of time to be watered down, affected, or fucked with. Sorry for my language, too, but this is my life. And I love what I have right now. I wouldn't trade it for anything. A boxcar of cocaine, I would run out. Probably take me a couple of weeks, but I would run out. Because I know that a lot of my old friends would come back. I want to leave you with one thing, and if there's anything that, that you remember from what I've said tonight, I want you to remember this story, because it is not my own. It is Bill W.'s. Bill when he started, he had his wife, Lois. Thank God for the wives and mothers of alcoholics and addicts because we would be doomed without them. Lois put up with so much crap from Bill. In a movie that James Wood did, that mm. was scratching the surface, and even that bugged me. But reading their bios and knowing a lot about what's going on with our fellowship and, and knowing about the cult that I belong in, you know, um, there was a story about all the years that Bill traveled around setting up fellowships and going to other meeting places and stopping fights. That's why the traditions were developed, to stop the fights between the groups. And he finally got a chance to go on a vacation. He got his own house after sleeping on other people's couches in their front room. He finally got his own place, went to go on vacation, left one of his sponsees at his house. Lois and Bill come back and the guy is dead. He killed himself in Bill's house. Turned on the stovepipe. Asphyxiated, is that the word? Choked to death on gas. The guy died. Bill came in, sees this guy died, has died in his house, and he starts crying. Now, I personally don't get too attached to the guys I sponsor because... We die. If you want it, you got to work for it. 
So Bill says to Lois, I don't get it, it doesn't work. And she walks in and being the black belt in Al-Anon that, that she was, like my wife, she said, you don't get it. It works for you. You're still sober. This program works if you work it. Thanks for letting me share.